As we finish our prayer time together today, let me share another important request we'd like to take a moment and pray about together. As you know, our church sends out a number of church plants around our country, and um, church planting is hard work, uh, really hard work. And after three years of that hard spiritual work in Portland, Kevin Lott, our church planter and pastor of Eastbridge Church there, has decided to step down from pastoring for a season so that he can tend to the needs of his family. So I'd like to encourage you now with me and then ongoing throughout the week to pray, be in prayer for the lots and for Eastbridge Church, their church family these days, as they go through what I'm sure for them is a hard leadership transition. So let's pray just one moment for the lots together. Lord, we ask mercy on our friends Kevin and Jen and their kids. Lord, bless them. Be their strength. Be their hope. Be their joy these days. This hard decisions are made for them, for the good of their home. And Lord, bless this choice. Pour out blessing upon them. Uh, may the very best possible outcome of this season um, be exceeded by your mercy. We pray the same for Eastbridge Church, now without their pastor. Um, Lord, bless that group of people. North Waker, North Wakers, Beth and Carrie Martin are there. We pray for them. We pray your richest blessing upon them. And Lord, now as we open your word, show us Jesus that we might love him all the more. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, blogger and trainer Christy Matta writes an interesting perspective. She says, most babies go through a phase in which they are fascinated with their hands. They watch them intently as they move in and out of their sight. But as they get older, they enter another phase where they repeatedly drop items from a high chair onto the floor over and over and over. She says, it can seem like they're trying to annoy you by requiring you to continuously pick up the same item, but that's not why they do it. What are babies doing in these two phases? It turns out they are simply discovering their world. At just a few weeks, their hands are a fascinating item. They watch them to discover how they move, what they look like, and what they can do. And then when they're just a little bit older, gravity is not yet obvious. Let go of a spoon and it drops to the floor. If you let go again, will it happen again? But she writes, as we get older and come to know the world, we forget that it was once a place of mystery and wonder. We no longer wonder what will happen when we let go of an item. We know it will drop. And we experience what some have called a loss of wonder. A similar perspective was shared by the now sadly disgraced comedian uh, Louis C.K. He was on Conan O'Brien's late night talk show in a segment called Everything's Amazing and Nobody's Happy. And in that segment, Louis talks about how entitlement can rob you of joy and wonder. He describes how people gripe about their phones because they have to wait. And he says, give it a second, will you? It's going to space and back. And... This is a heavily redacted retelling, I'll warn you. Louis says he was on a plane that offered in-flight Wi-Fi access to the internet. One of the first planes to do so. But when it broke down in a few minutes, the man sitting next to him swore in disgust. And Louis was amazed. He turns to O'Brien and he says, 
how quickly the world owes him something that he didn't know existed 10 seconds ago. And he goes on to talk about how many of us describe less than perfect airline flights as if they were experiences from a horror film. It was the worst day of my life. First of all, we didn't board for 20 minutes. And then we get on the, phone, on the plane and they made us sit there on the runway for 40 minutes. And then he says mockingly, oh really? Did you fly through the air incredibly like a bird? Did you partake in the miracle of human flight? Everybody on every plane should be going, this is amazing. We're sitting in a chair in the sky. I, I wonder if this could be said of us, of people who follow Jesus, if it could be said about the way we think about our faith. Everything's amazing, but nobody's happy. It goes like this. I got a speeding ticket the other day. How could God let that happen? You got a speeding ticket because you were speeding. That's how God let that happen. Or I had to have minor surgery last month, <clears throat> lasered some kidney stones. I was suffering horribly. I'm fine now. The next day, in fact, I was good as new, but the insurance only covered part of it. It cost me like a grand. Sometimes I think God is out to get me. So, so you had laser surgery that healed you on the spot and you think God is out to get you because you had out-of-pocket expenses? Really? Everybody's amazing. Nobody's happy. Or everything's amazing, rather. And nobody's happy. You know, that shouldn't be said of us as Christ followers. That should never be said of us. If it is, then somewhere along the way, we've missed Jesus. You know, sometimes we need to be reminded of just how amazing this faith of ours really is. And today we want to do that through looking at the first two encounters Jesus has in Mark chapter 2 as we continue our series in Mark. Christy Mata, that blogger writing about um, our loss of childlike wonder, has a perspective that I think would be helpful for us. She says, cultivate your beginner's mind as a daily life experiment. Try to approach a problem at work with fresh eyes. Imagine you'd never encountered this problem before. Explore it in all its detail. Do the same, she says, with daily experiences, like, like dinner time or while in a conversation with a friend or a spouse. Look at the interaction with new eyes. And that's the perspective I'd like for us to take today as we look at two interactions Jesus has in the beginning of Mark chapter 2. They start in verse 1. And when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together and so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Mark writes, Jesus saw their faith. 
how can you see faith? Well, you see it when they tore the roof off to let their friend down so he could encounter Jesus. That's what faith looks like. Professor James Edwards put it this way. It's helpful. He says, being part of the crowd around Jesus is not the same as being a disciple of Jesus. The crowd stands and observes. Disciples must commit themselves to action as illustrated by the plucky squad of four. If an opening to Jesus cannot be found, one must be made. That is the description of faith. It will remove any obstacle, even a roof, if necessary, to get to Jesus. Another writer says, faith, it has been said, lives under one great compulsion to get into the presence of Jesus. And in response to this amazing visible display of faith, Jesus pronounces over this man that his sins are forgiven. Now, the only problem is Jesus, right? That's not why they came. They came because he can't walk. He's paralyzed. He needs to be healed, not forgiven. Yet, those two things would not have been unrelated in their minds. The common perception was that there's a pretty direct connection between sin and sickness. You're sick? What'd you do? Sickness is a result. Well, let me, let me back up and say, it's not that sin and sickness aren't related at all. It's just not always a direct one-to-one -one correspondence. Sickness is a result of sin in our world. All sickness is caused by the presence of sin. It's just that not all of my sickness is caused by my sin. But surely, and you don't have to think about this long to figure it out, some suffering and even some sickness is a direct result of our choices. And that may well have been the case here. We simply aren't told the cause of his condition. And Professor Dale Bruner writes about this. He says, we're surprised that Jesus handles paralysis by forgiveness. Your sickness is healed would make more sense. But when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, we get the impression that Jesus does word surgery. That he reaches down beneath the man's paralysis to his guilt and removing that cures him at his roots. Perhaps there is something that matters more here, even than being healed, even if you are paralyzed. Imagine that. You're paralyzed. You cannot even walk about on your own. What could possibly matter more than being healed? Jesus here says, being forgiven matters more. More than anything, Jesus is saying. And in light of that, Jesus pronounces this man's sins forgiven, whatever their cause. And he doesn't really just pronounce, he declares in, a, in an almost causative sense, as he'll make crystal clear in just a moment down in verse 10. And the scribes, they pick up on this. Verse 6, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. 
Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now the scribes were Bible scholars. Professor Bruner calls them seminary professors, and, and he is one. So these Bible scholars, these seminary professors, knew all too well who alone had authority to forgive sins. And they knew what it meant for someone to claim to have that authority. In their minds, it was blasphemy. It was someone claiming to be able to do that which was purely a divine prerogative. And they are right. Unless Jesus can back up his claim with actual forgiveness. Mark puts their charge against Jesus in question form. Why does this man speak like that? Who can forgive sins but God? God alone. This charge of blasphemy, of claiming God's right and power to be your own, which was really tantamount to claiming to be God, that's the charge that would send Jesus to the cross and to his death. Matthew recorded it, chapter 26, when the high priest tore his robes and said, Jesus, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Well, back in our passage in verse 8, immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Jesus knew what they were thinking, maybe supernaturally. But then again, Jesus knew people. He knew these leaders He knew what they were thinking. And Matthew colors in the heart that's behind their accusing question when he says, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? So there's something clear here. If you reject Jesus' claims and you you then align yourself with an evil ideology, This is no trivial matter. According to Jesus, you believe who he says he is and what he can do or you are embracing evil thoughts. Jesus knew their thoughts. And evidently he knew this paralyzed man's sins. Who is this guy who knows us that well? Verse 9. Jesus says, which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, rise. Take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. If you were to look that up in the Mayberry translation, it it sounds like this, shazam, right? It's not a thing. Don't look it up. Um, But this is truly amazing, right? The guy that had to be carried in leaves carrying his own mat, skipping, I would like to think. But beyond the physical miracle, Jesus has claimed here to be able to forgive sins and then he backs that claim up with a corresponding miracle. It goes like this. If he claims to forgive sins, 
He's either blaspheming or he's God. Forgiveness of sins ultimately lands at God's doorstep because ultimately our sins are against God. That's why King David, after committed both adultery and then murder, says this, against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Pastor Tim Keller is really helpful in his illustration of this. He says, let's say Tom, Dick, and Harry are talking. Tom punches Dick smack in the mouth. There's blood everywhere. Then Harry goes up to Tom and says, Tom, I forgive you for punching Dick in the mouth. It's all right. It's over. What is Dick going to say once he's calmed down? Harry, you can't forgive him. Only I can forgive him. He didn't wrong you. He wronged me. You can only forgive a sin if it's against you. And that's why when Jesus looks at the paralyzed man and says, your sins are forgiven, he's actually saying, your sins have really been against me. The only person who can possibly say that a human being would, would be, say that to a human being would be their creator. Jesus Christ, by forgiving the man, is claiming to be God Almighty. Now again, of course, anybody could make the claim to forgive sins. But the idea is that if he can truly forgive sins, he should be able to remove sin's effects. Professor Alan Ross puts it this way. He says, the point is that if Jesus can take care of the effects of sin by healing a paralytic or a leper or by raising a dead person, he can therefore also take care of the cause of the illness by forgiving the sin. So Jesus healed this man to show that he, the Son of Man, has the authority to forgive sins. If he could heal the disease, he could also heal the cause of the disease, the sin. If he had simply forgiven the sin, people would not have known if the man was forgiven or not. But now they know. Jesus doesn't just talk the talk of forgiveness. He walks the walk, right, as this man walks out of the room. Do you understand what that means? It means all your sins, all of them, each one carrying a death sentence before a holy God, each one, each selfish, cowardly deed you have ever done, all that you can remember, and even the ones that you tried so hard to forget, even the ones that you didn't even know that you did. The Old Testament calls them sins of ignorance. Think about that. You feel bad about your mountain of sins? You have another mountain that you probably don't even know about. And he, this Jesus, has authority to forgive them all. To wipe the slate clean, wholly, perfectly, eternally clean. One writer Put it this way, here Jesus has acted not as a channel of forgiveness, but as its source. See, these stories, these miraculous stories we're reflecting on in the early chapters of Mark, they're designed to show us who Jesus really is. 
to show us what life near him, life in the kingdom is to be like and what this servant king is really like and what kind of amazing authority he has. Authority over sin, authority to forgive, divine authority. So, so buckle up, church. This is more amazing than sitting in the sky, right? He has authority to forgive all your sins. And all these miracles we've seen in Mark, the the cleansing of the man with an unclean spirit, the healing of Simon's mother-in-law from that fever, the casting out of many demons, the healing of many with diseases, the cleansing of, of the leper, none of these compare to the miracle we're looking at here, the forgiveness of sins. Let me give you just one reason why it's so, so important to have our sins forgiven. Our shame. Back in 2017 and 2018, uh, Ryan Patrick Morris and Troy Allen Nelson appeared in Judge Greg Pinsky's Montana Cascade County District Court. It was a result of their violation of their respective probations related to previous criminal offenses. And they both lied to the court about having served in the military as a way of receiving lenient sentences for their previous criminal behavior and their parole violation. It didn't work. Judge Pinsky sentenced Morris to 10 years for felony burglary and Nelson five years for felony criminal possession of dangerous drugs, both with years suspended. Morris and Nelson will be required to write letters of apology to various veterans group as well as complete 441 hours of community service. That's one hour for each citizen of Montana killed in combat since the Korean War. Then during the years of their suspended sentence, they'll be required to spend each Memorial Day and Veterans Day visiting the Montana Veterans Memorial. While they're there, they're required to wear a placard that reads, I am a liar, I am not a veteran, I stole valor. I have dishonored all veterans. Pinsky's sign-wearing punishment follows similar public punishments in recent years that have forced other lawbreakers to publicly parade their misdeeds. In 2012, a Cleveland woman was ordered to stand on a street corner holding a sign that read, only an idiot would drive on the sidewalk to avoid a school bus. A year later, an Ohio judge made one man hold a sign outside a police station that said, I apologize to Officer Simone and all police officers for being an idiot, calling 911, threatening to kill you. I'm sorry, and it will never happen again. You know, sometimes our sins feel like those signs. We carry them about with us, and though we wish we could hide them, we're sure that others can see our shame. And that can become unbearable. But Jesus here has authority to forgive them all. Really, he's demonstrated this is not idle chatter. He proved it when he told the man, man, rise, pick up your bag and go home. And then he did. Okay? It's amazing. Don't miss it. Don't forget it or limit it or water it down. He has authority to forgive all. All of them, all your sins and all of mine. He bore our shame on the cross. 
There's a little chorus we sing. It, it says it beautifully. It says, you took our sin. You bore our shame. You rose to life. You defeated the grave. And a love like this, the world has never known. So this is the very best of news. There's forgiveness in the kingdom. So draw near to the Son of Man, who is Jesus. He has authority to forgive you. Everything's amazing. We should rejoice. But before we leave this story, let me point out just a couple of little details in addition. It's good for us to find ourselves in this story. And when we do, it's good for us to realize we're like the paralyzed man. He brought nothing to his encounter with Jesus. He was paralyzed. There are no good works presented by him. He is there totally helpless. He just comes to Jesus and he is both healed and forgiven. This is pure grace. And you may feel that way this morning. Helpless to make yourself acceptable to God. And that's okay. In fact, that's essential. You have to be paralyzed before you can be raised. And until we acknowledge our sin, that it's against God, resurrection to newness of life, forgiven and free, will be always out of our reach. Now the other detail of note is that Jesus refers in verse 2, not to this man's faith, but to their faith. Primarily, he has in mind the faith of his four friends. Martin Luther wrote about it this way. He said, first the friends alone had faith, not the sick man. And then he had to come to faith, otherwise their faith would not have helped him. <clears throat> Therefore, he says, alien faith, the faith of another, helps me to come to my own faith. Professor Bruner adds, there is such a thing in the Gospels as intercessory faith. And the way we carry friends to Jesus today is by praying for them. And we see this in the Gospels repeatedly. Parents are often bringing children to Jesus or asking Jesus to pray remotely for their children. Sometimes for a servant. And Jesus hears and he heals. You know, during this season of sheltering at home, this needs to be a season of laying a foundation of prayer. Prayer for the faith of our neighbors. That faith would come to the lives of our neighbors in Jesus Christ. Um, Sam Williams mentioned in his time a website, Bless Every Home, blesseveryhome.com. Um, and they will email you every day once you sign up, put your address in, connect yourself to Northwake Church. Uh, they'll send you a list of neighbors' names and show them to where they live on a map near you so that you can pray for them on a daily basis. 
Now, Northwake is, is logged into this uh, app. We have a page that shows statistics of how many families are engaged. And as you can, as you can see on the screen, there are um, 41 families engaged from Northwake already, praying daily for over 500 neighbors. So encouraging. Would you join us? Okay. Go to blesseveryhome.com. This is the season to pray for our neighbors. Now, there's a second story we want to look at today in Mark 2. And it brings another accusing question from a second religious group and a second amazing truth about who the Son of Man really is in the kingdom that he invites us into. Verse 13, it starts, the second story. Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Levi rose and followed Jesus. Now Levi, who goes by Matthew in Matthew's gospel in all probability, was a tax collector. He is an IRS man of the worst sort. Scholars describe tax collectors this way. By Jewish law, a tax gatherer was debarred from the synagogue. He was included with things and beasts, unclean. Um, The unclean passages in Leviticus 20 were applied to them. He was forbidden to be a witness in any case. Robbers, murderers, and tax collectors were classed together. They were swindlers, equated with pagan slaves. And yet Jesus calls this tax collector, named Levi, And he follows him. And and again, this may well be the Matthew who's got the gospel named after him, the gospel of Matthew, who eventually was one of the 12. Jesus calls Levi and he follows. Don't miss the miracle. A tax collector has become an apostle. And likely he came following at great cost. Um, Likely, he was quite wealthy. And unlike the fisherman Jesus has already called, he couldn't return to his nets from time to time. Uh, Levi walked away from it all, once and for all. Luke's account puts it plainly when he tells this story. He says, leaving everything, Levi rose and followed Jesus. Leaving everything. You can imagine what Mrs. Levi thought when he got home and told her what had happened to his livelihood. But the focus here in Mark is on the party that Levi throws. Look at verse 15. As Jesus reclined at table in his house, um, probably that's Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples for there were many who followed him. We learn from Luke's account that the party was truly at Levi's house. And we read here that there were many tax collectors and sinners there, which raises a second question by a second group of religious leaders, as we're about to see, and they are called the Pharisees. Now, Pharisees were Jews who had a reputation for excelling at observing their religious laws with exactitude. The Pharisees lived in a closed community where admission was carefully regulated. 
A candidate would agree to observe all of the Pharisees' religious tradition, which included tithing, even of spices, and ritual washings, elaborate dietary laws, and he would then be under probation for a period of time, could have been up to a year, during which his compliance to these myriad of laws was monitored. For the Pharisees, you had to clean up your act before you could associate with them. They functioned as a kind of religious honor society where you earned your association. Cleaning up your act was a condition of association. And so according to their tradition, there was a whole segment of society that no self-respecting Pharisee would associate with. And they called those people sinners. So it's no surprise that they raised this, the Pharisees that raised this second accusatory question for Jesus in verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors and said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? See, this is the second amazing thing about this servant king and his kingdom. Sinners are welcome there. Serious sinners, even professional sinners, are welcome in his presence, in his company. Professor Grant Osborne says that more than likely, these sinners were blatant offenders of the rule of conduct. Wicked people, such as pimps, prostitutes, thieves, and gamblers. And he says Jesus and his disciples were sharing table fellowship with these disreputable people. And the Pharisees were scrupulous in their eating habits, not just in terms of the food laws, but with whom they shared their meals. For Jesus and his disciples to eat with such people was scandalous. It meant they were accepting these tax collectors and identifying with them and with sinners. This was Jesus' reputation. He was often seen at dinner parties with sinners. In Matthew, Jesus says that of himself, he says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Well, in verse 17, when Jesus heard their accusation, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This was Jesus' stated mission. This is why he came. To go to those who are sick, to those who needed him most. Dr. Jesus came for the sick and the sinful. It might be helpful here to think about the categories. Who are the righteous? Who are the sinners? More importantly, which category are you in? How would you self-identify? Righteous or a sinner? If you identified as if you self-identified as a righteous person, then that means that things are pretty much okay with you and God. You've lived a pretty good life, and God is likely largely pleased with you as a result. If you self-identify as a sinner, and you think so are likely not okay with you and God if it's based on your performance. And you know that you have failed morally and it's really not unfair for you to be put in line with the other tax collectors and sinners, even the pimps and the prostitutes, even the homeless and the poor. 
That, you would understand, is where you belong. So which group do you identify with? See, this, this question is of the utmost importance because if you don't identify yourself as a great and terrible sinner, undeserving, wholly undeserving of Jesus' company, then Jesus did not come for you. If you think you're mostly righteous and you can stand before God and be okay because of how you've conducted yourself, you're going to get that chance one day. But let me warn you, I don't think it's going to go as you anticipate it will. But for those of us who identify ourselves as sinners, great, prolific, skilled, relentless sinners, this is amazing news. Jesus came for us. We get invited to the party. We don't have to self-clean first. It's a come-as-you-are affair. Jesus cleans us up as we place our hope and trust in him. So again, honestly, which group are you in? How you self-identify determines if Jesus has come for you or not. He's come for soul-sick sinners. Everything's amazing about that. We should rejoice. We should throw a party. Former Willow Creek pastor Bill Hybels, pastorate, sadly, did not end well. But he was, before all of his troubles at the end of his ministry, one of the best at loving neighbors who are far from God that I've ever run across. And I'd like for you to listen to him today as he talks about what he calls a Matthew party. He writes, at Christmas time last year, I did what I have done every year following Willow, Christmas, Willow's, Willow Creek's Christmas Eve service. I threw a Matthew party. Despite wall-to-wall meetings, planning sessions, run-throughs that week, my mind kept drifting to the Matthew party. It was only days away. I couldn't wait, he says. I invited about 20 people who were living extremely far from God by their own admission. These men and women had never been to, to Willow Creek Church before, had never been to my house before, and spiritual, spiritually speaking, would profess to be going it alone. Now to that group of 20, I added about 20 people who were in the seeker slow lane, the remedial class of Christianity, you might say. On the rare occasion when I would badger them mercilessly, they'd agree to come to church with me, but it was sporadic attendance at best, usually involving a fair amount of kicking and screaming on their part. Most of them had been to my house previously to attend other parties, and all of them knew I was working on them, nudging them along the very slow path to God. Maybe they would step across the line of faith someday, but in my estimation, it was going to take some time, a lot of time. Now, in addition to the 20 or so people who were very far from God and the 20 or so people who were in-progress types, I had sprinkled in a dozen or so very strong Christ followers from my church to mix it up a bit. The screening process, he says, for this group had been intense. I couldn't afford any overzealous types showing up, no truth vigilantes, no bounty hunters, 
Just normal, mature, relationally intelligent, open-hearted, radically inclusive people who understood how high the stakes were that night. After all, I was going to put them in a room with friends of mine who, apart from a bona fide miracle, would spend eternity apart from God. He says, I wish you could have been there to watch what unfolded that night in my house in Barrington, Illinois, in the 21st century. We enjoyed an approximation of Matthew's or Levi's first century party. It was, an incredible, it was incredible to witness so many God moments in the making, not to mention it was just a heck of a party, he says. The first time I glanced out of my watch, it was well past midnight, and guests ended up staying until 2 o'clock in the, in the next morning and only then left because I kicked them out. But he says, sometime just before daybreak, my mind still racing from the mystical aspects of that party, I thought to myself, the whole thing comes down to night's just like this one. The future of the kingdom of God comes down to whether individual rank and file Christ followers will do in their everyday lives what just happened in my home tonight. So Northway, when this corona teen is lifted fully, okay, have a party to celebrate. Host a dinner, put up tables and chairs in the cul-de-sac, invite some neighbors, invite some friends from work, invite some folks from your small group and pray that Jesus will show up too. This is where Jesus does a lot of his best work, at a party. Everything's amazing. Jesus forgives our sins, all of them. Sinners are welcome in the company of Jesus. We should rejoice. And we should throw a party in his honor. Let me encourage you. As uh, Daniel and Jessica lead us in this closing song, um, use this as a time to just reflect. Reflect on what it means that Jesus forgives and Jesus loves and accepts sinners like we've seen in these two stories in Mark 2. What does that mean for you? What does that mean for your neighbors? 